Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 9. Okay, so hear the word of God from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. This is Jesus. Remember, he just cast out a demon, as we talked about last week, when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And so the story continues. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus. Because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterward speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. The unquenchable fire. Going down to verse 45. 44, 46 is not... um, Well, there's a, a, a manuscript discrepancy there. So we'll get it in 48. So let's jump to 45. And if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. 47. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt should lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Our Father, we humbly submit to your word. We want to live our lives in accordance with all that you say, because we believe that your words are indeed life and wisdom and truth. Father, we pray that we would feed on your words and that we would feed on Christ, the bread of life. Lord Jesus, you told us if anyone is hungry, anyone who comes to you will never hunger and those who believe in you will never thirst. And so satisfy our thirst 
and our hunger this morning on you. We pray that as we let your word abide in us and we abide in you, that we would bear much fruit. Because apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. So help us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. What is a fulfilled life in Los Angeles today? I have two views in mind, two popular ways of thinking. One way of thinking is be great, go for it, be popular, be yourself, be respected by others by just doing you and being who you are. We'll call that the, ir- the irreligious vision of life. The irreligious vision. It's not tied to relig- religion. Then we have the religious vision. The other answer. The religious vision says, be moral. Be more moral than those around you. Associate with the right group. Do good and God will accept you. Don't be like those bad people over there. So there's the irreligious vision of just be yourself and forget what the world thinks, just do you. And the other view, which says, get in the right group and don't be like other bad people. Neither of these views is what Jesus or the Bible teaches. So, if you have a vision of life, whatever your vision of life is, of the fulfilled life, you actually build rhythms and practices into your life that keep you going into that vision. You know what a rhythm is, right? It's just a steady drumbeat, and it's, it's something that carries the song along. And so it is with the rhythms of our life. There are certain practices, like Sunday church. If you come here every Sunday, that's one of the rhythms of your life that goes in week in and week out, and it, it, it shapes your life in a certain direction. So no matter who you are, whether this is the first time you've ever stepped foot into a church, thank you for coming, if that's you, or whether you've been here for many years and you've been going to church all of your life, like my children have, The point is that the rhythms you build into your life shape the goals you're pursuing of what you think a fulfilled life is. So we could work, step on other people to climb up. We can connect superficially with people, just enough people to use them to get to where we need to go. And we get to write our own rules as we go. That's the irreligious view. Or we can compare ourselves morally with others, feel good about ourselves, consider ourselves part of the right group and look down on other groups and try to do all the religious activities our group prescribes to feel like God actually accepts us. Again, two different views. And the problem is that these are both two different traps for your life. They're treadmills. Treadmills that have no end. You jump on the treadmill and you run and run and run and you never get to the end because there is no end in sight. There is no rest for the person who wants to define themselves by their own personal values and cultures and just be them. They're never finally satisfied. So it is with the religious groups. It's a, it's a treadmill and it's a mirage that you're almost at the end of your journey, but you never quite make it. It's like trying to hold water in your palm. Try that before, right? Hold water in your palm. It might get there, but it slips through and it's gone very quickly and you just keep at trying to fulfill this vision. Here's the point that Jesus wants us to get this morning. Following Jesus and taking up your cross includes three important rhythms in your life. So I want to talk about three rhythms in your life to get to what Christ wants you to be in your life. Now, if you'll remember from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and following, Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my follower or come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his 
cross and follow me. We talked about dying to ourselves, killing ourselves is the way I I try to say it, to jolt us to feel the radical nature of what Jesus was calling us to. So that, that sermon, I just gave three reasons or four reasons why you should take up your cross. I didn't tell you what you should do, how you should do it. What Jesus does here, what Mark does in these 21 verses is give us how to do it. Three rhythms, practices in your life regularly to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But before we get to those three, look at verse 30. 30. So in verses 30 to 30, 32, let me summarize that before we get to the three rhythms. Jesus talks about his cross and resurrection. This is the second time he told his disciples, I'm going to die. And after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. He told them that several times. Now, as he told them that, it says in verse 32, did they get it or did they not get it? They didn't get it, right? And then not only did they not get it, what did they do or what did they not do besides not understanding it? They were afraid to ask. When you don't get something, what should you do? Ask, right? Seems simple enough. They didn't get it and they didn't want to even ask about it. They were content with misunderstanding. So Jesus is telling them about the cross. And let me just make four statements of this in passing to get to our main course, I would say, from, from the text. Here in this passage, firstly, Jesus is he's getting to his mission of dying on the cross for our sins. He's turned the corner. He kept saying, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming. And the disciples were like, yes, we're in. We're one of his 12. If he rises to the top as king of kings, we're right there with him. We're going to ride his coattails to glory. And then he stops the crowd. He starts privately teaching, hey guys, I'm the Messiah. And you know what that means? I'm going to die on a cross and rise from the dead. And they were just, they didn't get it. But Jesus has now turned that corner. He is on his way to the cross. You can't stop him. Number two, or secondly from this, not only is he setting a sight there, but the disciples don't get it because their preconceived notions block any immediate insight. In other words, why don't the disciples get it? They are closed-minded. They're not intentionally closed-minded, but they're closed-minded. If you ask the disciples, if we took this microphone, camera, Peter, who do you think the Messiah is or what is he going to do? You put the microphone on him, even after Jesus told them twice that he's going to die, he'll say the Messiah is going to conquer the world and he's going to bring Israel back to the top and God's kingdom will be reestablished and we will reign with him over all the nations and all the nations will be flooding in to our nation and we will be on top of all the other nations. That's his view. His view. And when you hold on to your view so strongly, when another view comes in, if you hold on it too tightly, you can't hear it, right? You can't hear it. You're closed-minded. Not only that, you get to the point where you're afraid to ask a question. You're afraid to ask a question. Well, before we get to the fear, we have to ask ourselves, are we really listening to God's word? Or do we have our view and our perspective so set that we can't hear what God is actually saying? How open are we to understanding things that we've been so familiar with for so long? Peter grew up hearing that the Messiah was going to be the king. And now Jesus is telling him something different. Peter is now being challenged. We can assume that since we believe something for so long, and we've always thought of it that way, that it has to be right. But does it have to be right? Was Peter right that the Messiah was not going to die? He was wrong. And even as Christians, we get this. We have friends who've grown up in Mormon homes or Jehovah's Witness homes or friends who've grown up atheists. If they said to us, you know, this is the way I've always thought and I've always done it this way, so I can't be wrong. 
we would say, well, you could be wrong for a really long time, right? So tradition is not always true and precedence isn't always praiseworthy. Now that doesn't mean novelty is always new, is the right thing either. But the point here is Peter can't hear and the disciples can't hear Jesus because they're so stuck on what they have always believed about the, what the Messiah was going to be and do. And so that makes them scared to ask. Why were they scared to ask, you might ask? It's because they didn't want it to be true, I think. It's the fear maybe you have when you are feeling around something in your body and you feel an irregularity. And then you say, I need to go to the doctor. But I don't want to go to the doctor. I'm, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid to ask, right? It's not because I don't need to go. It's because I don't want to hear what that might actually be. It's that, that fear is what they have. He's told them twice in the language that they speak, we'd say in plain English, he's going to die and rise. But they're, they're scared to ask because they hope it's not really true. Like, do you mean by that that you're actually going to die and rise? Like, they don't want to ask that because they don't, they're scared to, to hear the answer to it. And so they stay quiet. And so I would just say for you, if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you need to learn to ask questions. Even if it's painful, truth is always good for us. Truth is always good for us. And so even though Jesus was not immediately effective in his teaching, eventually they got it. So don't be discouraged. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you teach the children's class, you know, don't be, it took them a long time to get the fact that he's going to die and rise. And so if you're a parent and you're teaching your kids and you keep telling them, be careful with the milk on the table. Just be careful. It's right there. Don't put it on the edge. You can say it a hundred times. They'll eventually get it. But you just, you have to go through those hundred times. That's just part of learning. And so be encouraged brothers and sisters, be encouraged that we can learn. You're saying, well, I just don't get it. Keep thinking, keep praying. God will bring us around. Okay, let's go to these three rhythms of life now. If we're going to follow Jesus, we need to have three habits or practices in our lives to live taking up our cross. Here they are. Serve, support, and sever. You got it? Serve, support, and sever. Let's start with serve. Look at verses 33 to 37. Jesus wants them to pursue true greatness. In verse 33, they, are argue, they come to the house. Jesus says, what were you guys arguing about? Verse 34, they were quiet. Why? Because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And so they were embarrassed. Partly, right? Embarrassed that they're actually talking about who's going to be the greatest. Now, the sad thing about the disciples here. And it's also sad about our lives, but here with the disciples, they always argue about the greatest when Jesus just told them he's going to die on a cross. It's like the two, it's like black and white, right? Oil and water. I'm going to die on the cross and I'm the Messiah. We don't want to hear that. Let's talk about who's the greatest. It's the exact opposite discussion of what Jesus is trying to beat into their heads, right? And so this happens with the disciples over and over. You get to 35, he calls them together and he says to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be what? Last of all and servant of all. So is Jesus saying don't pursue greatness? Is he saying don't be first? Is he saying don't try to be first? He's not saying that. He wants you to be first. But if you want to be first, if you want to have godly ambition and you want to truly be a great person, what do you need to do according to this verse? Be last of all and be servant of all. He's not saying don't pursue greatness. He's saying go for greatness, but he redefines what greatness actually is. 
service. That's why the first rhythm of your life, if you're going to take up your cross and follow Jesus, is serve and be the last of all. Serve everyone. Serve your church family members. Serve them in prayer. Serve them in conversation. Meet their needs. Serve your biological family. You're saying, PJ, I already do that. Okay. Serve your neighbors. Be last among your neighbors. Serve your friends, your enemies, people who are different from you, different social groupings. Serve an ethnic group that's different than yours. Serve an economic level that's different than yours. Serve people from a different political party than your political party. Serve people of a different religious belief than your religious beliefs. Serve them with the values of Christ Jesus spelled out in the Bible. I'm not saying don't gospelize them. Of course, we want to bring them to Christ. But serve them. Don't just say, I don't, the only way I'm going to serve you is to tell you the gospel. Other than that, I don't want to have anything to do with you. That is not Christian. That's not biblical. We are to serve our neighbors and then gospelize them on the path of serving them. So let's contrast religion with irreligion again. So religion, or let's say religion. I had religion on the side last time. Right? Religion says, do religious good deeds and you can know you're better than those who do less than you do. That's what religion says. Irreligion says, greatness is being free and not obeying anyone or anything outside yourself. Greatness is just being yourself. It's being the most free and doing whatever you want, whenever you want. And those are both lies. Those are both lies. Greatness is following Jesus in serving others. It's not just doing religion. It's not just being yourself. It's following Christ which has some commands to do, but it's also who you are. It's not being, don't be a slave of Christ the way I'm a slave of Christ. We're all uniquely slaves of Christ. And then he gives us a way of doing it in verse 36. How do you do this? Look at verse 36. Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. So how can you serve very practically here? By welcoming a child. Why? When you receive a child, it says in verse 37, when you welcome a child, who do you welcome? Jesus. When you don't welcome a child, who are you not welcoming? Jesus. Now, why? Why does Jesus pick welcoming a child? And by the way, if you're a parent, don't say, I welcome my children all the time. I'm not talking about your children, okay? Of course you welcome your children. Um, We're talking about welcoming other children that are not your children. Why would that mean you welcome Jesus if you welcome a child? Because when you welcome a child, you're actually taking on the values of Jesus. The value of service and humility. Why? Because children are small and insignificant and helpless in this culture. They, aren't, they weren't little angels back then and they're not little angels now. Right? They smile and look like little angels, but they're not little angels. Children back then, as of now, they're profitless in the sense that they don't make any money. They don't have any economic value. Or, well, they, I guess you get a tax break. But in, our, in, our, in that day, there were no tax breaks. They were profitless until they were big enough to work and contribute. So receiving and serving children meant you were serving them not for what you can get out of it. Because they couldn't return anything to you. Children are the least grateful people as well. Right? They don't realize what you do for them when they're children. They don't know you're sacrificing for them and serving them with great effort. They come to expect and assume 
service. And that's exactly the point. If you serve for the recognition of being great and not for really being a servant who is great, then you miss the point. They don't stroke your ego. They just take your service and keep playing. Right? And if you're going to be last of all and servant of all, then you invest in children. And that's one practical way of doing it is investing in children who could never pay you back. There's a subtle and important difference between wanting to be great and wanting to be thought of as great. There's a difference between the two. I'm playing with kids. You guys see me? Everyone see me playing with kids? You know, you're doing it because you want to be thought of as great versus just doing it because you are actually pursuing true greatness. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, to serve true greatness. That's what true greatness is. So application, serve the children of our church. And I'm not talking about children's ministry yet. And not even primarily. I'm just saying, serve the children of our church. What do I mean by that? Receive them. Protect them. Teach them in conversation. Ask them what they learned in class as they're running around. Get to know their names. Get to know them deeper than just a high and by. Be an ally to the parents of our church. You be an influence in our children's lives. Be a significant relationship in their life for years to come. Because there will come a time when my kids will not want to listen to me because I'm dad. But when they have 10 or 20 other adults in this church who have been investing relationally in their lives for 10 to 15 years, I might just say, why don't you go with uncle so-and-so and and go go have coffee with him? Just go talk to them. And that's when I'm going to need you. And that's that's what we want to be to each other. We are a church family, right? And so raising children is a community project. Now, parents obviously are the primary responsibility, but they're not the exclusive responsibility. And so there's a call from Jesus. You want to be a servant, serve children and get to know them relationally. Don't coast and simply let the relationship flow. Be intentional as the adult. Another application would be serve in our children's ministry. Again, that's not the main thing I'm going after here, but that would be another way is you get to obey Christ's words very tangibly. You get to gospelize the kids and serve the parents. You get to relieve other servants who need a break as we're trying to build rotation. This morning, this is a special Sunday. We had Sunday school teacher because the Masters College kids are here. We had Sunday school class. We got Sunday service, which is normal. Sunday night, we have children's teachers. So if you have children and you haven't come to Sunday night, you can come tonight. We have children's class tonight, first time in a really long time. So um, the point is we want to, if we're going to build our church, we need to have these things, but we need volunteers to have them, right? So it's kind of a catch-22 for us. Men, I want to challenge some of you in this issue of service. I want to challenge some of you to pursue being a pastor or deacon. You don't have to be on staff. That doesn't mean our church has to afford it. You can be part-time, or I think Bill Curry was part-time when he was here. Biblically, there's a plurality of pastors and a plethora of deacons. That's what a healthy church would have. It would be, it would be healthy. So I want to call men to look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and look at the qualifications and say, I want to serve. Not for recognition's sake, but I want to just be a servant. That's where true greatness is. For all the members... Let's, let's serve by encouraging each other, even today. And let me just say one more thing for our church culture before we go to the next one. Christians, let others in the church know your needs. Let them know your burdens. In other words, let them serve you. 
This is difficult in our American culture and even our, in American church culture where we need, we need to intentionally break this, where many can't serve because we don't know the needs of others. We just feel embarrassed. I feel embarrassed. I'll admit, I feel embarrassed sometimes to ask for help. But we need to break that in our own lives. If we're, that, that will that'll push us beyond surface to, to meeting needs in the church. Everyone here, when I look at everyone here, I don't look at anyone who doesn't have a need. I know you have needs. I, don't, I might not know what they are, but I know you have them because all of us do. Now, when we start to share it regularly with each other and start meeting them, then we get to practice service, which is what Jesus is telling us to do here. Be last of all and be servant of all. Maybe one way you can break it besides volunteering your own information and, and opening up is to, is to ask a question to another person. Is there any way I can serve you? Once we start moving to less no's in answer to that, I feel like if someone even asked me today, is there any way I can serve you? I'd probably say no. I, I can't think of something right now. But the, the, more, the less we say no and the more we say yes, the healthier our church will be. Okay, that's number one, serve. Number two, support, verses 38 to 41. This is a shorter one, but it's here in the text, so we'll, we'll take it. Verse 38 to 41, support. Know your allies. Look at verse 38. John said to them, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And Jesus says, don't stop him because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is what? For us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you he'll never lose his reward. Why did John try to stop them? They weren't authorized, right? They weren't approved. They didn't go through the system. You're not approved. You're not certified. You can't cast out demons. In Jesus' name. Only us 12 can because we're the only ones who are certified. And the 60 others Jesus certified. You're not one of the 72. Stop it. That's what John says. On the authority as a disciple, I command you to stop. And they don't stop. They just keep doing it. I'm telling on you, Jesus, this guy over here, he's not listening to my authority. And Jesus says, don't stop him. And John's like, what? He's not one of us though. Why does Jesus not stop him, but he stops the disciples instead? There's three reasons right here in the text. Number one, look at verse 39. One is that they performed the miracle in whose name? Jesus' name, so that he, so if he's doing that, he cannot speak evil of Jesus. This is what 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says. Paul writes, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So if someone is for Jesus... And he's not speaking evil of Jesus. Don't stop him. Why are you stopping him? Number two, look at verse 40. Whoever's not against us is for us. So, so don't stop someone who's on our team. He's for us. And verse 41, he's going to have what at the end? He'll never lose his? That guy's never going to lose a reward. Why are you opposing him? He's going to be rewarded by God and you're going to oppose him? If you're opposing someone who's being rewarded by God, then whose side are you on? Right? God is going to reward him. He will never lose his reward. Why would you stop him? That doesn't make any sense. And so support other workers. Know your allies. Now, this is a polarizing passage because there are two sides and you can't be on both sides. You're either with Jesus and the disciples or you're not. 
The dividing line between all humans in this room and all humans in Bellflower, all 80,000 residents of our city, and all 4 million of Los Angeles and 10 million in L.A. County, there's a dividing line, and the dividing line between all humans is Jesus. Are they in his name? Are they united to Jesus or not? If they are not, they are against Jesus. If they are in Christ by faith and repentance in the gospel, then they are for Jesus. And if they are for Jesus, then you ought to be for them and not stopping them. Luke eleven twenty three, Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So here Jesus is telling, uh, telling us that there's two sides. But he's not calling us to holy war. He's not calling us to violence. Some people in the media will say that Christians who are Bible believers are, are calling for holy war, which is just ridiculous. He's not telling us to go to holy war and, and, and physically attack people. That would be sinful. He's telling us to be aggressive in sharing the gospel. It's a spiritual war. We're trying to save souls. He's not telling Christians to be aggressive and abrasive and violent and obnoxiously rude in propagating the message of Jesus. He's not telling us to do that. Jesus' point here is that the kingdom of God and those who are on the side of the kingdom of God have experienced Jesus and they should be celebrated and supported, not opposed or stopped. So religion says, going back to the religion, irreligion, religion says those who are religious with the same rules we follow and the same customs we have are on our team. And only those who have the same customs, same rules, only those are on our team. Irreligion says... Let's all be on the same team because it's all about love, man. It's just, it's just unity. It's just, let's all be united even when we disagree because diversity is good. And there's no principle to the unity. It's just let's be united because let's be united. Irreligion has no point of unity because they're just trying to be united for unity's sake. Religion has unity over customs and practices that are tighter than God wants in some ways. Even John here is a follower. He's one of the 12. He's in the exclusive club, right? Of the 12 apostles. And the 72 that were sent out to cast out demons. And yet Jesus rebukes him and says, don't stop that guy. He's on our side. So what's the application here? Obviously it's to support other workers. And John learned this. Listen to this. You can turn here if you're fast enough. But in 3 John verse 5, it says this. Or 3 John verse 5 says John writes, Dear friend, you are showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers, especially when they are strangers. Listen, it's stranger Christians. Christians who are strangers. Verse 6. They have testified to your love in front of the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they are sent out for the sake of the name. They're sent out for the, on, in the name of Jesus, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, John writes to the church, we ought to support such men so that we can be co-workers with the truth. Did John learn his lesson? Yeah, right here John is saying it's us, us and no more, right? By the end of John's life, he's about to die. Third John, he gets it. We support those who are, who are living for the sake of Christ. So we pursue unity. When you're in a gunfight and people are firing at you to kill you and someone shows up that you don't know and he's firing at them and not, not at you, do you shoot the guy? Do you? Right there, there, people are shooting at you. Some stranger comes up and shooting at, at the enemy. You don't shoot him because you don't know him. He's not certified, right? 
You're trying to survive. And he's on your team. And th- that's, that's the point. If you're at a table discussion with an atheist, a Muslim, and a Hindu, and an agnostic, and someone else who's naming the name of Christ, you have to ask yourself, am I evangelizing him, or are we on the same, time ev- same team evangelizing them? Right? So this goes beyond denominations. Now, I, I firmly believe in denominations. I think churches need to work together, and they need to have certain things that are even more more in line than other denominations. I don't believe in baptizing babies. I, I pray that those that do, that share the gospel, I pray that they spread the gospel everywhere. But I won't line up in a denomination with them because I, I believe that that's an, an obedience issue. But the point here is even in a spirit of unity, we have, or even in a spirit of diversity, that there's a sense of unity on the line of who's for Jesus and who's against Jesus. Does that make sense? In terms of who you support? This is in our Baptist faith and message. Our statement of faith. This is 2000. It says this. Listen to our statement of faith here. Christ's people should, as occasion requires, organize such associations and conventions as may best secure cooperation for the great objects of the kingdom of God. That's why we are in the Los Angeles Southern Baptist Association, California Southern Baptist Convention, and Southern Baptist Convention. Such organizations have no authority over one another or over the churches. They are voluntary and advisory bodies designed to elicit, combine, and direct the energies of our people in the most effective manner. Members of, the New, Test- of New Testament churches should cooperate with one another in carrying forward the missionary, educational, and benevolent ministries for the extension of Christ's kingdom. Now that is all what we do in the Southern Baptist Convention, right there. Now listen to this, it continues. Christian unity in the New Testament sense is spiritual harmony and voluntary cooperation for common ends by various groups of christ's people now listen to this cooperation is desirable between various christian denominations when the end to be attained is itself justified and when such cooperation involves no violation of conscience or compromise of loyalty to christ and his word as revealed in the new testament you know what our statement of faith says it says those who are for us are for us, and so we have to support each other. Now, we don't compromise our principles, we don't compromise our statement of faith, but to whatever ends it is, if we're going to, let's say, try to help a crisis pregnancy center and protest abortion, we're not going to only go with our denomination to that, right? So depending on what you're doing, the point is, unity is, Jesus is drawing a line between those who are in Christ and those outside of Christ. Not only that, I would also say one more thing for us as our church family. How is the unity in our church doing? I would say that our unity is is locked in right now. And some people disagree with me and say, this church is not united. I, I, don't, I don't feel, I don't tremble at the disunity of the church. Here's why. You know where our unity is solid? We unite around our statement of faith, Baptist faith and message. We unite around the commandments of one another, which would be an, a church covenant. We don't have a church covenant technically, technically right now, but we still have the spirit of that covenant because that's in the New Testament. So our unity is in our love for one another as members. And thirdly, our unity is in our bylaws. That's what unites us, right? That's what keeps us all on the same page. That's what keeps us all on the same page. Everything else we can disagree on and still be united. We can disagree on what color the carpet should be, what time, you know, we can disagree on so many other things and still be united because unity is in those three things. Statement of faith, one another's as members of a church, which would be a church covenant technically, and then our bylaws. And that's what keeps the unity even in the middle of diversity. So I don't mind in our business meetings having disagreements. 
and having votes that are not unanimous. That's okay. That doesn't disprove our unity. Our unity is in Christ and in the gospel. And as a church, it's united in our foundation documents. Okay, so that's second. So firstly, if we're going to follow Christ, we need to serve. That's where greatness is, right? You guys remember that? Serve, be last of all. Secondly, we need to support those who are in Christ Jesus. Support each other on the same team. Number three, sever. We need to cut something off or we need to basically fight sin like it's your worst enemy. That's verses 42 to 50. Let's close with this last point here. Verses 42 to 50. Sever. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if what? If a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were what? Thrown into the sea. My worst fear, drowning. Right? Worst fear of how to die, drowning. Jesus says, it's better for you to drown yourself than cause another Christian to sin. That's how serious it is that we take unity seriously. You sin against another person to the point of causing them to sin, you're better off drowning yourself. Those are heavy words. And this millstone here, notice that my translation says heavy millstone. There were two types of millstones. There were the millstones that the women worked on, for grain, and then there were the big millstones that the donkeys would use to to to, tra- to to do their work. And so, this heavy millstone is the big donkey one, right? So tie that around your neck like a necklace, jump in the water, and try to swim is what Jesus is saying. If you're going to cause another Christian to stumble and sin, this doesn't mean that we all have license licenses to say you're stumbling me because, and then fill in the blank. So now we all get to. That's not the point. The point is biblical sins. Sins as defined from the Bible, not sins that I think are sins, PJ's opinion on what sin is. That doesn't matter. PJ's opinion means zero when it comes to what a sin is. What the Bible says is a sin is a sin, and we need to be careful not to cause each other to sin. We're better off drowning ourselves, according to verse 42. And then, and then read on in verse 40. So we need to feel the seriousness of sin in, with each other, but then you go to verse 43... And then we need to feel the seriousness of our own sins. So what should we do? Verse 43, if your hand causes your downfall, what should you do? Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than have two hands and go into hell, the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, if your foot causes your downfall, what should you do? Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes your downfall, what should you do? Gouge it out. It's better for you to enter life in the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. Notice here, Jesus is not just saying stop sinning. He's not saying cut out sin. He's saying cut out the things that are what? Causing the sin. Is it good to have eyes? Is eyes a gift from God? As our, visions, as our vision fails, my glasses, my prescription is horrible at my age. It's going to be really bad as I get older. But aren't eyes a gift from God? Hands are a gift from God. Legs are gifts from God. But Jesus is saying, if it's causing you to sin, you need to get to the root of it and cut it off. Now, he's not saying literally cut it off, okay? Origen, one of the early church fathers, did that in obedience to this text, in in misinterpretation. Talk about getting an interpretation of the text wrong, right? Or an application. I'm not saying literally because you can still lust with the other eye, right? 
you take one eye out, you're like, oh great, now I'm never going to lust again, right? Well, no, that's not the point, because you still can. Jesus is saying you take radical steps because your worst enemy is your own sin. Not the sins of others. Your worst enemy is your own personal sin. And so you, will do, you must do whatever you can to cut it off. If there were a magical apple tree that gave one of your family members or friends terminal cancer every time an apple was produced, what would you do to that tree? Would you simply keep picking off the fruit as it was produced? No, because then they'd be getting cancer. Would you cut off the branches? Maybe the trunk? No, you'd uproot, uproot the whole thing, as they tried to do yesterday, right? You'd uproot the whole thing. You'd get to the roots, or else it would come back again, right? And the point Jesus is getting at here is don't just attack the fruit or the expression of the sin, attack the root and the cause of the sin. We get so accustomed to sinning that we forget how foreign it is. And how destructive it is to our lives. We'd rather sin. Test yourself here. We'd rather sin than get bit by a rattlesnake. True? It shouldn't be true. But it sadly is. We should rather get bit by a rattlesnake than sin against God. That just shows how, how hardened, maybe how callous my heart, how, how callous our hearts are. We're so, we sin every day. So we'd rather sin than get bit. And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus puts it the other way around to reverse his disciples' values. If you're going to take up your cross, you need to have these values. Long life and health on this cursed world is not, on this cursed earth is not the goal of life. Long life and health is not the goal. The goal is glorifying and trusting God in this cursed world. And when you do that, you do verse 49 and 50. Look at verse 49. If you're actually cutting off your sin in your life and fighting it and trying to kill it, Jesus says, verse 49, is the reason why you need to do it. Because everyone, everyone who is his disciple, will be salted with fire. Now, what does that mean? That They'll be salted with fire. This is a strange statement, and it's unlike anything else in the Bible. Turn to Ezekiel, to the left in your Bible. The one cross-reference I have for you guys today. Ezekiel 43. If you can't find it, don't worry, I'll read it to you, and you'll hear it. Ezekiel 43:24. Listen to Ezekiel 43:24. It says this. You must be present, you must present them the sacrifices before Yahweh the Lord. The priests will throw salt on them and sacrifice them as a burnt offering to the Lord. You hear that? So there's a sacrifice, the priest will throw salt on the sacrifice and then he'll do what? Burn it. So what do you have here? You have salt and fire. Okay, so now going back to Jesus' words, in Mark chapter 9, verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. In other words, you will be a living sacrifice. Pure, fighting sin in your life, serving others, supporting other Christians, being servant of all, cutting off your hand, gouging out your eyes, cutting off your feet, because... You are a living sacrifice devoted to the glory of God because you have been saved by Jesus Christ. Everyone will be salted with fire who does this. And salt is good, but if, you, if the salt loses its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves, so be salty, kill sin in your life, be that living sacrifice, and then be at peace with one another. Verse 50. Religion says... 
Taking drastic measures earns God's love for you. So if I cut off my hand, God will like me more. If I gouge out my eye, I'll have more of God's favor. That's what religion says. Irreligion says, God should accept you for who you are, whether you dishonor him or not, whether you make any sacrifices or not, God should just love you for who you are. The gospel says, the gospel is not religion or irreligion. So if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, or you're not sure you're a Christian, let me just say something to you before we close. Are you religious and trying to earn God's love for you? Do you feel like God loves you more when you obey and when you don't, like that, that God's actually pushing you away from him? God can be displeased, I admit that. But do you feel like you're trying to earn God's love by your religion and your religious practices? Or maybe you're on the irreligious side. Maybe you're the type that says, man, God has to accept me because of who I am because who wouldn't accept me? That's irreligion. That's not the gospel either. The gospel says Jesus took our sin and became the worst enemy. He, took on, he became sin for us. He became the worst enemy and he died on the cross and God poured out his judgment on Jesus Christ on the cross so that he can accept you. Not because of what you do. You can't earn it. But he doesn't accept you as you are as a sinner either. He sends his son to die on the cross for your sins and rise from the dead. Because God is holy and made you. We are sinners on our way to hell because all of us are guilty. But because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for our sins, if you would repent from your sins this morning and trust in Jesus, you'll be forgiven of all your sins. You'll have eternal life. And God will give you his Holy Spirit who will live in you and transform you from this day on as you take up your cross and follow Jesus. So if you're not a Christian or you're not sure you're a Christian, I want to urge you this morning, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us as Christians? It means we need to fight sin with all of our might. We need to confess sins to one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to call and ask we need to ask each other spiritual condition questions. I don't want it, I want it to be normal. I want it to be increasingly normal that we ask each other, how are we doing spiritually? How's your soul? How are you doing with your walk with God? And then encouraging each other, holding each other accountable to the sin in our lives so that we might fight sin together because sin is our worst enemy. We're not enemies of each other. We're partners trying to kill sin and spread the gospel, right? That's what we're doing. So, serve, support, and sever. Did you notice that Jesus did all three of these things? Verses 30 to 32 is him taking up the cross. How did, he, how did he serve? He gave his life as a ransom for many, right? How does he support? He becomes the point of our unity. Everyone who's in Christ, we're on the same team. Why? Because he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And does Jesus... Does Jesus did Jesus get cut off? Yeah. He was cut off on the cross. That's how serious he took sin. He severed sin when he died on the cross for our sins. And for that, we thank him. So let's serve, support, and sever sin as we take up our crosses and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to do this. It's hard to take up our cross and follow you. Yet you call us to do it. So we pray that you'd give us strength. Thank you that Jesus died to give us strength. Thank you Jesus died to give us your Holy Spirit and to give us your word and to give us saving grace that we might believe in Jesus, turn from our sins and learn to walk in his ways. Guide us, we pray, and continue to grow us as a church family that serves, 
that supports and that severs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.